Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's book is called The Gender Knot, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy. And it's the first text we've read that was written by a man since we read John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women several months ago. I have loved reading all of these books by women, but as I read this book, it hit me for the first time, really, how important it was that a man had written it. And here's why. One of the biggest lessons that I've realized in my education on racism recently is that society often places the burden of changing racist structures onto people of color when the responsibility should be on the people who benefit from and uphold those racist structures. And so racism is a problem for white people to solve. White people need to own it. And likewise, I realized as I was kind of finishing reading this book and reflecting on, you know, that this was written by a man, I thought this is really powerful because sexism, which exists in all cultures in various ways, is often treated as a quote-unquote women's issue. So there's a TED Talk on this by Jackson Katz that's really excellent, and I highly recommend um, people to watch it. And Jackson Katz points out that men often kind of tune out and they don't pay attention when something is presented as a women's issue. And so I really love and appreciate that Dr. Alan G. Johnson, um, who was a sociologist and a college professor, he was a man and he took on patriarchy as his life's work to educate people about the system of patriarchy. So I was really, really gratified also to see a lot of online reviews of this book were written by men. And these men said that this book helped them see things that they had never considered before and really changed their lives. So I love this book and I would invite uh, listeners who are women, share this episode and share this book with the men in your lives and men who are listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for doing this work. And this might be a book that you want to get and read. So I'm super excited to discuss the book today. And I want to welcome my reading partner today, Casey Cruz. Thank you so much for being here, Casey. Hi, Amy. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Before we start digging into the book, I'll just quickly share a, a little bit about the author. So this book is by Alan G. Johnson, and he was born in 1946 in Washington, D.C. He earned his bachelor's degree in sociology and English at Dartmouth, and then his Ph.D. in sociology at the University of Michigan. His dissertation for his Ph.D. focused on women's roles in Mexico City. And after receiving his Ph.D., he worked at Wesleyan University in the sociology department. After he left Wesleyan, he worked at Hartford College for women, teaching sociology and women's studies. And during this time, he wrote a number of books. And one of those books is the book we're discussing today, The Gender Knot, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy. And that was published in 1997. And afterward, he became a corporate speaker and a freelance lecturer. And he was a husband and father and grandfather, and he passed away in 2017. So we'll start trading off chapters, and I took chapter one and chapter two. So Dr. Johnson starts out the book with a description of a workshop that he did on gender issues in the workplace, where he asked the workers at a specific company 
to come together at these conference tables and brainstorm lists of how gender shapes their lives at work and also beyond work. And so what he used to do is divide them into a men's group at one table and a women's group at another table. And so in this part of the book, he describes how both groups describe a system that advantages men and disadvantages women in many, many ways. And this is what he says about it. Quote, the accumulated sum hangs heavy in the air. There are flashes of anger from some of the women, but many don't seem to know what to do with how they feel. The men stand and listen, muted, as if they would like to find a safe place to hide or some way to defend themselves, as if all of this is about them personally. In response to questions about how the lists make them feel, one man says that he wants to hang on to the advantages without being part of their negative consequences for women. Depressed is a frequent response from the women. On a scale both large and small, we are faced with the knowledge that what gender is about is tied to a great deal of suffering, injustice, and trouble, but our not knowing what to do with that knowledge binds us in a knot of fear, anger, and pain, of blame, defensiveness, guilt, and denial. We are unsure of just about everything except that something is wrong, and the more we pull at the knot, the tighter it gets. End quote. So I love that introduction, just talking about how the gender not, that it just feels like we can't make progress because we know there's a problem, but we don't know what to do about it. So I thought one of the most important parts from this chapter is this one. He says, quote, male dominance promotes the idea that men are superior to women. And I'm going to pause really quickly and just throw in, I, I want to say that I don't personally know any men who would say just straight out that they believe men are superior to women. I don't yeah. think. I hope no. not. <laughs> but what I find is that men are often in denial of the structure that we all live in. And th that structure really does place men in a superior position, even if individual men don't claim superiority or think that they're superior. And Alan Johnson says, quote, if men occupy superior positions, it is a short leap to the idea that men themselves must be superior. If presidents, generals, legislators, priests, popes, and corporate CEOs are all men, with a few token women, then men as a group become identified with superiority. It is true that most men in patriarchies are not powerful individuals and spend their days doing what other men tell them to do, whether they want to or not. But at the same time, every man's standing in relation to women is enhanced by the male monopoly over authority in patriarchal societies. And then he continues later about how women feel in this system. He says, to see herself as a leader, for example, a woman must first get around the fact that leadership itself has been gendered through its identification with manhood and masculinity as part of patriarchal culture. While a man might have to learn to see himself as a manager, a woman has to be able to see herself as a woman manager who can succeed in spite of the fact that she is not a man. And just one more quote on this topic. He says, Living in a patriarchy means that every woman must come to grips with an inferior gender position and that whatever she makes of her life will be in spite of it. 
with the exception of childcare and other domestic works and a few paid occupations related to it, women in almost every field of adult endeavor must still labor under the presumption of being inferior to men, interlopers from the margins of society who must justify their participation and their right to be counted as, quote unquote, one of the guys. And that's the end of that quote. So he goes on to say that, like, men have a hard time in their lives, for sure, because of lots of different reasons. And there are different intersecting aspects of identity that can make life difficult for men, for sure. And he says that that this can happen, quote, because of race or other subordinate standing, but not because they are men. It is in this sense that patriarchies are male-dominated, even though most individual men may not feel dominant, especially in relation to other men, end quote. So yeah, I just feel like this comes up in conversations for me, talking with men all the time. Patriarchy does not mean that all men are tyrants or even that all men are empowered and feel powerful in their lives. Okay, so next chapter, it's me again. Um, I took this chapter, it's called Patriarchy, an it, not a he, a them, or an us. So in this chapter, he says this, quote, The something larger that we all participate in is patriarchy, which is more than a collection of individuals. It is a social system, which means it cannot be reduced to the people who participate in it. If you go to work in a corporation, for example, you know the minute you walk in the door that you have entered something that shapes your experience and behavior, something that is not just you and the other people you work with. You can feel yourself stepping into a set of relationships and shared understandings about who is who and what is supposed to happen and why, and all this limits you in many ways. And when you leave at the end of the day, you can feel yourself released from the constraints imposed by your participation in that system. You can feel the expectations drop away and your focus shifts to other systems, such as family or a neighborhood bar that shapes your experience in different ways, end quote. I thought that was brilliant. Um, Such a great way of framing that. And I really could relate to it, right? Like, any even a different group of friends feels different from a different group of friends like there's just kind of different norms that we step into and play a role and act you know slightly different with different people and in different institutions so that leads into the next point that Dr. Johnson talks about and he he talks about you know there's this systemic issue this systemic problem about how males are privileged and 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 associated with leadership and strength and women are associated with being followers and being weaker and being, you know, subordinate to the men and being just supporters to the men who do the real work. Right. So that's structural, but he also says that, you know, on, on one hand, the, the organization is more than the sum of its parts, right? Like he talked about, like, there's a company and it has a culture and it's more than this, just the individuals. But then he kind of says the opposite point, which is somehow still true, I think. <laughs> and that is that any system or institution is, is just the sum of its parts, right? Like if, if everybody who is Catholic, for example, just disappeared, 
then what would the Catholic Church be? It wouldn't exist, right? It kind of exists in the minds of a lot of different people, and it's an idea that exists. And so because it's individual people that make systems happen, then people can also make those those systems happen differently. And he says, quote, when a man objects to a sexist joke, for example, it can shake other men's perception of what is socially acceptable and what is not. So that the next time they are in this kind of situation, their perception of the social environment itself, not just of the other people as individuals whom they may or may not know personally, may shift in a new direction that makes old paths, such as telling sexist jokes, more difficult to choose because of the increased risk of social resistance, end quote. I thought that was so interesting. And he talks a lot about um, the path of least resistance. It's just like the habits we're in because of what has been modeled for us by, you know, our parents and everybody that we've seen our whole lives, that it creates this path of least resistance. And he talks about how it is hard to carve new paths, but every individual who insists like, nope, we're not going to go down that that path of least resistance, like, oh, it's okay for everyone to tell sexist jokes. We're going to say, nope, I didn't think that was funny. And then it creates a different, it shifts the environment. So here I want to just say how grateful I am, honestly, that things have already changed so much, even since this book was published and it wasn't published that long ago. So I just wanted to ask you, Casey, to compare. And I just wanted to ask what the environment was like for you in high school and college, because I think you were in college during the Me Too movement, right? Right, yeah. I think things that for sure have gotten better over the years. In high school, I I honestly felt like I lived in a bubble and I went to Mountain View High School and I felt like it was always a very safe space and um, no one and not even any of my friends shared experiences where they were sexually harassed. However, when I went to college, it was much different. Because I, I did have a sexual harassment experience and I was um, intimidated when I was out with my friends one night and some men, obviously they were under the influence, um, started speaking to me and my friend and I did not like what they had to say. So I stood up for myself and they obviously did not like that. And so they started um, following us and yelling vulgar things at us. And it was scary. They were trying to intimidate us. It was a very eye-opening because I've never had that happen to me. And that was uh, my sophomore year in college. And so it still does happen. Um, There are people out there that will still try to sexually harass you and intimidate you. And so I still need to check over my shoulder. I still can't go out at night. I still sometimes second guess what I'm wearing just in case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you're okay and that nothing terrible happened that night. Scary. (laughs) It is scary. And it it actually leads into just the last quote I want to share from the chapter actually exactly because he talks – the author talks about how – with male privilege, he says, you don't have to feel privileged to have privilege. And I've mentioned this on other episodes, but one of my very favorite TED Talks is Michael Kimmel. And he he says this quote that I've remembered forever from the first time I saw it, quote, privilege is invisible to those who have it. And so the author of this book, Dr. Johnson, he says that while Like he, of course, would never, ever harm a woman, he himself, but he's had to learn like what it feels like to be a woman in this world and understand 
that women live in a world where men do commit acts of violence against women. And so he didn't even like realize that women did have these fears and that the system often allows violence against women. And so he says, and this ties in exactly with what you just shared, Casey. He says, quote, whether I personally encourage or support this behavior, like bad male behavior, is beside the point. That women fear and therefore defer to me simply because they identify me as a man or may seek me out for protection against other men or curtail their freedom of movement in ways that are unnecessary for me, all of this affects me regardless of how I think, feel, or behave. In such a world, being able to walk about freely at night or look people in the eye and smile when you pass them on the street or dress as you please becomes a privilege precisely because it is denied to some and allowed to others. And the privilege exists regardless of whether men experience it as such. So he's just saying that privilege exists whether or not the men realize that that's true. And But women know it's true, right? I mean, right. like just like you just said, and probably in those groups that he mentioned at the very beginning when women are brainstorming all of these things where where gender injustice impacts their lives and the men are like, oh boy, yikes, we didn't even know, right? Right. So anyway, okay, that's all I got, Casey, for my first two chapters. So you okay. can dive into yours. So I took on chapter four and it was titled Ideology, Myth, and Magic. So I took this quote, Sam Keen, for example, describes the heroic male identity as a capacity to feel outrage in the face of cruelty to protect the powerless and to heal those who are broken. This kind of real man knows how to take care of the place to which he has been entrusted, to practice the art of stewardship, to oversee, to make judicious things, and to conserve for the future, to make decision to be in a place, to make commitments, to forge bonds, to put down roots, to translate the feeling of empathy and compassion into an action of caring. And then he later says, in many ways, what Keene describes as heroic is more common among women than men. If anyone puts down roots, commits to relationships, and organizes a life around empathy, compassion, caring, healing, and even protecting the powerless, it is woman. And then chapter six was titled Thinking About Patriarchy. And Johnson I'm just going to go straight into the quote, says manhood ideals make an indispensable contribution both to the continuity of social systems and to the psychological integration of men into their community. I regard these phenomena as givens, but as part of the existential problem of order that all societies must solve by encouraging people to act in certain ways ways that facilitate both individual development and group adaptation. Gender roles represent one of these problem-solving behaviors. And I find this true, like, I, that, I mean, through history, that's what's happened, and that's why we're fighting to break away from these gender roles and what we think that women and men are supposed to do um, and to stay within this order. Mm-hmm. So okay. um, moving on to chapter seven, um, we both actually picked chapter seven as being really important. So we're go both going to share quotes. And chapter seven was titled, What Patriarchy? And the quote I picked was, 
Women, however, are seen as biologically endowed endowed with a core connection to life that men simply cannot that men simply cannot have. From this feared, hopelessly loved, and held in awe by their children, and until the advent of patriarchy some 7,000 years ago, firmly seated at the symbolic center of goddess-based religions. So I thought that Johnson's perspective was very eye-opening because I've always related having children and being pregnant as fulfilling the expectations of society and our moral duty. But then when Johnson gave me kind of gave me this perspective that showed that the creation of life is so powerful and kind of threatening in a good way for women. And I think about all the stories shared about the women on my mom's side who put them through put themselves through college, worked well-respected jobs, and raised children all at the same time, and how powerful that is, and um, how society may have at the time looked down upon their life choices and thought that they were jeopardizing order of gender roles by working a job and raising children, but and like almost saw that as a threat, but how strong and powerful it was for them to have children and then also make make something of themselves like my great grandma being a music teacher and then also being in a band and then my also my great great grandma um working at the pentagon so i think that's really cool that um that it's it it's more than just fulfilling your uh expectations of society or your moral duty it's so powerful to have a child and then also make something of yourself and um, whether that's doing something that you love and are passionate about or having a uh, a well-respected job. And yeah, that's what I took away from that quote. Hmm. That's awesome. I'm just going to share one quote from chapter seven that I found really compelling. And he's talking about what people refer to as reverse sexism. Okay. So what he says is, quote, The problem with false gender parallels is that the significance of what happens to people differs profoundly from one gender to the other. On the surface, the experience and behavior of women and men may appear to be similar, but this impression falls apart if we look at the larger reality of people's lives. Negative stereotypes about men, for example, can make them uncomfortable and hurt their feelings. This seems to be the most common cause for men's complaint and a major reason for women's reluctance even to talk about sexism when men are around. I have to admit, just yesterday, I was reading this book, reviewing it at my parents' house, and my dad walked in, and without thinking, I shut the book and quickly stuffed it into my bag because I knew it would make him uncomfortable and maybe make him sad and maybe make him mad, but I didn't I didn't know what he was going to think. I did not want to make my dad uncomfortable or hurt his feelings, so I hid the book. So that's true. But resuming the quote, but anti-male stereotypes come primarily from women, a subordinate, culturally devalued group that lacks authority in a male-identified, male-dominated, male-centered society. In other words, if the source is a woman, the damage that stereotypes can do is confined to personal hurt with little, if any, effect in the larger world. This is because anti-male stereotypes are not rooted in a culture that regards men as inherently dangerous, inferior, ridiculous, disgusting, or undesirable. Such stereotypes can therefore be written off as the bitter ravings of a group beneath being taken seriously. 
Anti-male stereotypes also cannot be used to keep men down as a group, to lock them into an inferior and disadvantaged status, to justify abuse and violence against them, or to deprive them of fair treatment. When women refer to men as jerks, for example, they are not expressing a general cultural view of men as jerks. If our culture really regarded men as jerks, the population would be clamoring for female presidents, senators, and CEOs. Instead, we routinely look to men for leadership and expertise in every area of social life, whether philosophy, government, business, law, religion, art, science, cooking, etc. Prejudice against women, however, has deep and far-reaching consequences that do a lot more than make them feel bad for it supports an entire system that privileges men at women's expense. Sexist prejudice does not just target individual women, for it is fundamentally about women and strikes at the mere fact of their being women. Each expression of anti-female prejudice always amounts to more than what is said, for it reaffirms a cultural legacy of patriarchal privilege and oppression. So I just thought that was a really clear explanation of that um, phenomenon that is really kind of tricky and and knotted up to use his knot analogy again. And I just felt like he pulled the thread out really clearly. And I thought, yes, that is, that's what that is. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our discussion. And I wish there were more time that we could highlight more passages, but we were just going to share a couple of action items because I know one thing that especially Eric usually says as we're talking about this stuff is he's like, okay, I'm convinced there's a problem. What are what can we do about it? Um, what are the action items? What can I do to make things better? Because it's really hard to just kind of marinate in all of the the sadness or the, you know, the focus on what the problems are without feeling like we can have some power to make things better. So we're going to share just four points and we'll take turns. So the the thing that we can do, some things that we can do are, number one, acknowledge that patriarchy exists. And I have to say that's one of the big points of this whole podcast project that I'm doing is I want to, I wanted to understand patriarchy better. And I also wanted to increase people's conversations about kind of acknowledging the system that actually exists. Number two is pay attention. So first of all, read. You have to be open to the idea that what you think you know is, if not wrong, so deeply shaped by the patriarchal worldview that it misses most of the truth. So a good place to start is just a basic text on women's studies. Uh, Men who feel there is no place for them in women's studies can start with books about patriarchy and gender that are written by men. Sooner or later, however, men will have to turn to what women have written because women have done most of the work of figuring out how patriarchy works. I have to say, I love that quote. And even there, I was like, oops, there's a little gender bias right there because like, (laughs) you're right. Right? Yeah. Can, can you imagine saying to a woman, like, sooner or later, you're going to have to read a book by, right. written by a man because sure men have done the work. So, <laughs> so even him, even Dr. Johnson, I think he didn't catch that. It's so funny. We're just so accustomed to living in a men's world. We don't even, we don't even see it. Sooner or later, you'll have to read a book written <laughs> by a woman. Oh, so funny. Okay. Number three, uh, learn to listen. And 
Alan Johnson says, if someone confronts you with your own behavior that supports privilege, step off the path of least resistance that encourages you to defend and deny. Do not tell them they're too sensitive or need a better sense of humor, and do not try to explain away what you did as something else than what they are telling you it was. Do not say you didn't mean it or that you were only kidding. Do not tell them what a champion of justice you are or how hurt you feel because of what they're telling you. Listen to what is being said. Take it seriously. Assume for the time being that it is true, because given the power of paths of least resistance, it probably is. And then number four, little risks do something. Recognize that the system is just made up of people. Take responsibility for small actions. In something as simple as a man following the path of, a least resist- of least resistance towards controlling conversations and a woman letting him, or be- being silent in the face of men's violence, the reality of patriarchy in that moment comes into being. This is how we do patriarchy, bit by bit, moment by moment. And so my main takeaway from that is that being silent is not enough. Being passive is not enough. And we all just need to stand up to a sexist comment, to any kind of homophobic or racist joke, and stand up together. Awesome. Awesome.